I'd like to thank my sponsors, Voyager and Electronium, for making this episode possible. Stay tuned for more info on them later. What is up, everybody? This is Scott Melker, the host of the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities in the world of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. This show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. If you like the podcast, you follow me on Twitter. You need to check out my website and join my newsletter where I share my trades, charts, analysis, market thoughts, lessons on improving your trading and investing. You can check that out at thewolfofallstreets.io. Now, today's guest is a fellow DJ who, like me, had the opportunity to enter the world of finance but turned down comfort and stability for a shot at a career in the world of music. He started DJing college parties and worked his way up to become one of the uh, best-known DJs and producers in the world. What many people may not know is that Justin's also passionate about both trading and crypto, two things I'm excited to talk to him about more on this episode. So Justin Blau, man, it's awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for, for being here. And thanks for letting me join. I'm really stoked to be here. Yeah, man. So tell me a little bit about uh, your path. It is so similar to mine. You reached a higher level uh, at the end of the path. But, um, you know, I was a Ivy League graduate who was DJing frat parties and, you know, and uh, kind of just decided that that's what I wanted to pursue with no real hope of a, of a future. And, uh, you know, ended up making a living out of it. No, that's awesome. Yeah, very similar paths, ironically. Um, I was starting to... Uh, I had made folk music when I was younger, like guitar, Bonnie uh, Bear style, kind of chill, mellow stuff. And when I got to college, uh, I studied finance in college, thus the kind of combination of my passion in music and, of course, in in the distributed ledger tech space. But um, when I got to college, I met um, one of my best friends who, who's still my best friend today, uh, Johan, who's Swedish. And he convinced me to come to Sweden the summer after my freshman year, which just made me fall in love with dance music. I was sold and wanted to be a DJ. And at the time, as, as you know very well, since, since you have a history in music, there weren't that many American DJs um, that were making house music or pop music. There were, there were a lot of DJs but not, not many that were making their own stuff. Um, mostly, you know, people that were playing clubs, um, yep. producers. And so as a college kid, I started making mixes, posting them to the internet, to all the blogs back when, uh, back when, you know, Spotify didn't control distribution uh, <laughs> monolith. But um, that was when I, I, you know, got very lucky. A couple things went viral on YouTube. I started playing the college circuit. Um, improved my skills as a producer, came out with some original songs. And then in 2014, my song, How You Love Me, went number one dance in America. And that kind of paved the path to, to where I am today, um, which is pretty crazy. But along the way, along the musical journey, I've always had kind of this fascination with the, the insane level of middleman transactions that happen within the music business. <laughs> the lack of fairness um, between, you know, all the different participants in the, in the music economy. And, you know, ironically enough, Kanye West is tweeting about that and everyone's been talking about it, just how, how terrible record labels are and how the structure of most artist deals are pretty, pretty terrible for the artist. And that kind of was my jumpstart into being fascinated with the decentralized economy in general, you know, what, what types of, assets could give artists more freedom, what types of distribution channels might make royalty payments faster, smart contracts that can distribute, you know, royalties fairly within seconds instead of within six months. You know, there's all this, all these different technological applications of distributed ledger tech to music. And that's when I decided, um, well, not to get, I don't want to go too, uh, too deep in all of the story, but um, I actually got into cryptocurrency in the first place through the Winklevoss twins. Um, I met them on spring break in Mexico. Um, this was right around the time after they discovered Bitcoin and Ibiza. And uh, they're still very close friends of mine. And, and you know, we chat about all this stuff on occasion. Um, but they, they were building Gemini while I was staying with them in LA, I think, in 2014. And that's when I bought my first Bitcoin. Um, at the time, it was like 5 BTC that I still own to this day in its own on its own address. And, uh, and that was the jumpstart into my journey in distributed ledger tech world. Um, follow that three years later, ICO craze 2017. I saw a lot of music projects pop up that I knew couldn't actually execute what their white papers were saying. 
um, and I decided to start my own project um, that was called OMF, our music festival. And the concept behind that was to basically allow fans to stake capital and choose artists of their own to play their own, like an independent music festival without a talent buyer. Um, and then of course, should the festival succeed, fans could share in profits. Little did I know after hiring great securities attorneys in three different jurisdictions, including Switzerland, Cayman and the United States, I learned very quickly that that vision wasn't really possible and that we would run into a lot of different reg regulatory issues. So I couldn't achieve the vision that we set out to achieve, but we did still throw a festival, um, in, at the end of 2018 with Zed, myself, and Big Sean, um, we developed a mobile wallet with Stellar. I worked with the, the Interstellar team and we built a mobile wallet for Stellar, Stellar Lumens. Simple stablecoin rewards at the festival. You could scan QR codes to earn rewards. You could spend them on merchandise. Very basic principle, you know, entry level project, but it worked. It was a great success. We had 8,000 people there. We did more Stellar transactions, I think, in, in a short period of time than ever. And people were really excited about it. Um, and that was at the end of 2018. And at that point I decided that I wanted to shut down the project, even though it was a great success because I felt that the regulatory environment wasn't ready for the vision that I had originally set out to create. And I found that I had to keep pivoting the vision into something that I didn't even want it to be, um, to kind of fit within the framework of U S securities law. So I decided the best thing to do instead of burning capital for many years until it was ready was to just, you know, start fresh and, um, think about other things that I wanted to be involved in with, with, within, within the, the blockchain space. And so I've always been an active investor um, in the space. I was trading altcoin arbitrage in 17 when different exchanges had wild price discrepancies. Of course, that didn't last very long, um, but it was fun while it did. And, you know, because I have that background in finance, I've always been a, a, not, a, not an active trader. Like I'm not trading on a daily basis, but a more kind of monthly weekly trader um, when it comes to this stuff. Um, I don't really hold a lot of alts. I'm pretty BTC maximalist personally, but I also kind of respect everyone's opinion. I don't think there's a correct answer. I don't think anyone can really know where this space is going because it's evolved in so many ways over such short periods of time. So um, yeah, so a lot of people are, are usually surprised that like I'm a DJ and I also might know a couple things about this stuff. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, uh, I've, I've been really excited about all the new developments in, in the DeFi space. I'm, I'm pretty active, um, in, in the farming world, but not of the shit stuff, more of like the stablecoin yield stuff. And, uh, and then more recently I've been exploring the world of NFTs and seeing how people value, um, my work beyond just the music itself. Um, we've been creating these audio visual experiences and packaging them up in these, you know, in these video files that are, you know, one of ones or three of threes. And we did our first launch with block party, uh, two weeks ago now, and we sold out in like three hours. I was like, wow, there's demand for this. There's something here. Um, and the world of NFTs is really, you know, it's something that a lot of people have talked about over the past three years. I'm sure you've heard tons from lots of different directions that this is the future, this is the future. Now I think we're starting to see the demand and starting to see the onboarding of new users and new collectors. And I think the applications of NFTs are going to grow way beyond art in the next couple of years. Um, so it's just exciting to be a part of the beginning of a new movement. And um, I'm really glad that I got involved. I think most people uh, hadn't heard of NFTs probably until a week or two ago in, in the community at large. I think you're right. The people who are in the know have been into it. I mean, I've been talking to Block Party for probably a year, you know, um, even when they were a ticketing platform, uh, you know, about the possibilities with uh, NFTs. For those who are, are listening and don't know, it's a non-fungible token, which basically just means that it has guaranteed scarcity. It's, you know, on the blockchain, but it's like you said, it can be a one of one three of three, five of five. And what's important about it, obviously, is that you, can, you can't forge it the provenance is clear there, you know, you can prove exactly what it is that it's not fake and that it's real and it's a collector's item. And I think we're in a world where scarcity is probably the most important thing for, for value moving forward. So can you talk about your first drop, what you did and, you know, sort of the creative vision of how you can use NFTs with music? Cause I know there are limiting factors. You can't just put out a song as an NFT, right? There's length and compression and, and things to, to deal with there. Right. So, you know, I'm lucky that I own, I, I've remained an independent artist for most of my career. So I do own most of my own masters and that, you know, that a lot of the variables that are, you know, required when thinking about creating these pieces, these, these particular art pieces. So all the audio in my pieces is, is original music that 
either has not been released or may never even be released. They're just ideas that I've had that are already kind of finished ideas, but they might not be full length songs. Um, so we decided to start figuring out a way for fans to hear those even before they're out in the world. Like there's no reason why a fan shouldn't be able to hear the stuff that's a work in process or maybe something that might never be a completed product. Um, and I think that, you know, teaming up with my art director, Slime Sunday, who's the visual artist behind our project, um, has been incredible because we've worked together for five years and I basically reached out to him and I said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to try making these small, very detailed digital audio clips as art? And he was like, I don't really know anything about this stuff, but let me give it a shot. We started making these things. We started, um, displaying them and testing them on these screens behind me, my, <laughs> my frames. And what we realized is, you know, while anyone can go look at one of these videos online, there is only one owner of an edition. Um, the same way anyone can go look at the Mona Lisa, but right. there's only one real Mona Lisa. There's really no difference. Um, the blockchain is just the, the, the manifestation of ownership um, and helps facilitate that validity of ownership within, within, the, within this digital art world that's, that's emerging. And what's, what's super fascinating to me is that these principles aren't new. They're actually pretty pervasive in culture and social media culture. It's just that people don't think of them as NFTs because they're not necessarily decentralized digital, digitally scarce assets. To give you an example, um, the Instagram verification checkmark is one of the earliest forms of digital scarcity that has incredible value. Now it's centralized scarcity in the sense that Instagram gets to decide, you know, who gets one and who doesn't. But back when I, you know, when, when the verification became a thing, I had a buddy that worked at Instagram that gave me the ability to verify other people's accounts. Wow. Now, then of course, it, you know, th that type of user account doesn't exist. Um, they actually had to rescind it because people were accepting payment for verification. Of course, I never did that because I would ruin my reputation and my best friend would hate me forever. But I, I did know of it happening. And I did receive offers of upwards of 14 to 18 grand to get an account verified because I had the ability to just press the button. Why? It's a blue check mark. Because there's a lot of other things that are associated with owning that piece of digital scarcity on your Instagram account. Maybe it means that it's more likely brands work with you. Maybe it means that people, you know, perceive you in a certain way. There's some digitally scarce emotional value to having a blue check mark on your Instagram or on your Twitter or whatever it might be. And so I, I like to give that as an example when people are like, why do I want something that everyone can see? Who cares? It's yours. Yeah, it's a stupid argument um, because every single girl I went to college with in the late 90s had a copy of, you know, Starry Night hanging on their, their wall in their dorm room. But that doesn't uh, take away from the one that's hanging in the MoMA, right? So I... Right, Ex exactly. And they look the same. And there is something to be said, and, and this is the kind of final thought about digital, digitally scarce art and digitally scarce assets in general. Um, there's something to be said about the emotion you get out of being the owner of something. And whether it's digital or not, you could buy a real pair of Yeezys or you could buy a fake pair of Yeezys. There's something that feels different about owning the real ones, even though they're both fucking sneakers. They both work the same way. They're, They're both, both made in the same factory. <laughs> but because you have the real one, it feels different. I don't want fake Yeezys. I don't want them. I'd rather, I want the real ones. Why? I can't really explain that with words. But the scarcity of it is what makes me want it. So there's no reason why that can't exist in the digital space. And of course, it's already existing with the entire principle of Bitcoin, right? The, the, the right. insipidity of the entire blockchain world is based on this principle of digital scarcity. There's no reason why it can't be manifested in the form of art or in the form of music. I think music will take a bit longer and we can chat about that later. Um, music by itself, I mean, right. but um, there's, because there are certain implications that, you know, with music that don't quite follow the same rules as art. But I do think, um, you know, the space is going to grow pretty substantially. And as these collectors, you know, continue to collect these digital assets, who knows what their value might be in the future. Wu-Tang did it, right? I mean, Wu-Tang sold an album to one person, the wrong person, unfortunately, but they, you know, they, that was leading the model. It wasn't necessarily an NFT by any stretch, but uh, 
it's been proven that you know scarcity in music can be monetized in that way. Obviously, as you said, music is somewhat different because an artist generally wants as many people to hear their music as possible and not a single person to be the only one that can, they can hear it. But I think it's an interesting time to even discuss this because most people probably don't know, but if you're a music producer or DJ, you have probably a thousand unfinished, somewhat finished, completely finished and never could get it licensed. I mean, songs, I have hard drives and hard drives full of stuff I made before I even had a computer, like, you know, tracks from MPC, like crazy, you know, and the lack of pressure to finish those and to have a medium to do that. If you have a great visual artist to put it together, I think that the possibilities are just somewhat mind blowing. And also I think it removes some of the, yeah, it removes some of the pressure also to make like a certain kind of song. Like when you're a producer and you're known for something, you can only put out a song that's going to make people dance or a song that's going to do this. And now you can like take that eight bar loop and create art out of it. Nailed it. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's literally what we've been doing and, and what's been, it's actually been re-inspiring, you know, at a time when I maybe starting in March when quarantine started here, um, I definitely lost a little bit of inspiration um, just given the nature of the world. And now I have a means of, like you said, you know, showing my audience ideas that might not be finished or might be partially finished or might never come out or may eventually come out and giving them the ability to appreciate that music in the form of audiovisual art. And it's exciting. It's reinvigorating. It, it gets me, you know, awake in the morning. And when we're done talking here, I'm going to call my art director and we're going to work on one of our pieces that's dropping um, on Nifty Gateway on October 5th. And we, we spent four hours in the studio. He was in his, you know, visual studio. I'm in my music studio going through how we're going to edit the intro, intros and outros of these pieces because we originally wanted them to loop perfectly, but it's kind of hard to do that. So now we're actually creating audio visual intro and outro. So it feels smooth when it repeats without actually looping perfectly. So these are all like problems that we're going to encounter as this space grows. But what's so exciting about it is that the demand is there, whether we like it or not, whether, whether someone else wants to believe that this is all bullshit or whether they believe in the concept of digitally scarce art, we did $23,000 of sales in three hours on block party two weeks ago. I didn't expect right. that, but it's there. And it's talk about the secondary market, right? So that people are only buying most people. There's people obviously who are the collectors, I think. And then who um, obviously are, you know, super fans and they're the ones who want to own it. But most of the NFTs being bought are being flipped by traders. It seems to me that they're buying it. Sort of aspect of it. And I think when you start adding physical features to these NFTs, like we've spoken about, you know, if, if we do a big drop, that particular NFT is your all access pass to every Blau show in existence for life, which we can actually execute on our end. What is that worth to someone? What is backstage access in any Blau show ever worth to someone? What, what would, might that trade on the secondary market for? These are intangible things that we can issue as physical features to these NFTs, not just artistic features, but physical features. So the landscape is like so early here. It's so early, but even more exciting because the market will determine what people want. And I'm here to hopefully provide it. Yeah. I mean, my, I'm experimenting with my first drop with block party in a couple of weeks too, which is like exciting because I've been basically retired for five years after doing this for 20 years. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, it got me so excited when I learned about the space and what was possible. And actually, when they showed me yours, <laughs> um, uh, what we could do. And, you know, the challenge I came up against was the ability to do a whole song. And so what we're doing with mine is we're splitting basically a almost four minute song into eight 30 second pieces with the art, with the artwork animated a different way. And then if you buy the entire thing or if someone collects all eight of them, then they'll get a comp video and the highway and the full wave, you know, from, from us and format. We, we've talked about that format yeah. as well. I think that's such a cool format because it makes it a collection. And, you know, I, I just think the possibilities are endless, man. I'm so excited to see a way to finally marry my two passions and to get back into it. And like I said, it's not, I don't have to sit here and make a whole lot of new music. I can just sort of retool something I've done and then work more hard on the, the vision of what the visual should be with an artist. And that, that's kind of what you're talking about. 
So what, like, how do you see it progressing with music? You kind of touched on that, but uh, what do you think the future is for NFTs with music with these challenges? So there's kind of a two-part answer to that question. I think there's the idea that, you know, how do we create NFTs with existing masters that are signed to bigger record labels? Well, we're probably a little bit far away from that, right? So like if I wanted, if I was an artist, you know, the audio that I'm using for my NFTs right now is mostly new stuff that isn't out yet that I own hundred percent of the rights to. Right. Let's say I wanted to tokenize and create visual art for a song that's already out there. Um, the licensing of that is, is extremely complex. I, there's no precedent for it. So I think we're pretty far away from that. That being said, that's not to stop someone from releasing a future song as an NFT first then signing the record deal, then the song comes out on Spotify. But at that point, they could carve out in the legal agreement some clause to make the NFT possible and not violate any master recording right ownership issues that might pop up. So, you know, these are all uncharted waters. Um, I think that it's going to be fun to experiment. You know, right now I'm playing it super safe by only using content that I know I own 100% of. Um, but in the future, let's say I issued an NFT with a full song and a full visual clip. And that song isn't out on Spotify, but it eventually comes out on Spotify. Maybe I release it independently. Maybe the owner of that NFT gets to share in the profits of the master recording right side of the song. That would be I mean, insane. That, yeah. These are all the potentials. Now that's a security. Right? Talk about an investment. Yeah. That's a security, but it's not if it's retroactive. So, you know, there's all these different, there are all these different security implications to, you know, putting a song into a piece of art that complicated, whereas just the visual itself is, is not that complicated, depending on the license. There are licensing implications to visuals, but not many when you're doing your own animations. So, yeah. So I think the, the potential is really just beginning and there's infinite potential. I mean, people have been painting celebrities and iconic images in unique ways, pop art for you know, as long as art has existed and it's never really been a huge copyright issue on the visual side, but music is such a different beast. I mean, I was stifled at every turn of my uh, career by copyright issues and sampling. Cause I think like you sort of around the same time, 2013, 14, 15, you know, my, I grew sort of doing mashups and remixes, you know, and uh, it was kind of not a big deal at that point until SoundCloud sort of got attacked and all the takedowns. And that's sort of actually like, that's what ended my career effectively when I finally decided to pack it in. Cause I was like, my SoundCloud account's gone. My, all my millions of listens are gone and time to, time to move that on. happened to a lot of people. And it's kind of crazy because there was so much like consumer demand for that stuff. And we weren't as, we weren't monetizing it. Like why did oh. people care? It's free promotion. I mean, it's no, so backwards. Completely backwards. And now some of that's changing because labels are starting to see that there could be monetizable value in releasing a mashup on Spotify. Like these are things that are happening, but, but it's still easier. You know, once you say the word crypto to a record label person, Oh my God, it's not even a conversation they can, they can dip their toe in, let alone dive into, which is what, you know, this whole space requires. So it's early, but I'm excited that people like yourself are taking this big leap of faith the way I did. And it worked. I, I didn't know. I had no idea what to expect. I mean, we made, you know, we spent a lot of time on our first drop art. I mean, some of the block party team will tell you, I mean, we went through at least like 10 to 20 versions of every piece. It was a yeah. lot of work. It's not, it's not like we're just like throwing an image together, putting it up on the internet and selling it for 15 grand. Like that's not people what's are. happening. <laughs> <laughs> people are. Um, want to be known to be that guy. But yeah. um, for us, I mean, it was like a two month process of me and Mike, my, my visual director, we've already worked together for five years and we like really thought about what we wanted to convey with this art. And our first three pieces were the DeFi rabbit hole piece. It's called DeFi, but it's meant to be, this kind of vortex rabbit hole that act, that is audio reactive to the original song that I made underneath it. So the DeFi rabbit hole shakes every time the kick hits and every time the snare hits. And we wanted to create, you know, meaning in that piece. We also had a piece called the grid, 
which is my um, signature triangle logo um, with this kind of, it's meant to look like a f blockchain field, whatever that means. Um, we just thought about how we could like create a grid field that is reminiscent of what the, a digital representation, a visual representation of what the blockchain might look like. Um, and then we, of course, created this randomizer for a public and private key that, of course, don't line up, right? Because it would be impossible to, 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 to do that. We wouldn't want to do that for a lot of reasons. But we basically created this random uh, public-private key generator that was constantly running at the bottom of the piece as the triangle spinning. Um, so the grid was the piece that actually sold for the most and took us the most time. Um, the song was also completely original. And that one was, was really, really fun to work on. And then the last piece we did... It's called Spacewalk, um, just a, a block literally floating in space with uh, some really cool light leak features. Um, and uh, oh yeah, and then on on the um, one of my future pieces, yeah, we actually I actually reached out to one of my friends who's who's an incredible cybersecurity engineer um, who wrote a Python script for me to pull in live block hash data. Um, and so while the, it won't be live block hash data on the art piece. Um, it, it's recorded um, from a couple weeks ago. But there's literally hashes coming down the screen as That's this awesome. shape is moving. Um, it, it's like super, super, super cool. So we've like put a lot of thought into this. Like I'm reaching out to friends to write scripts for this art, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I think that's why, you know, people are probably excited about it and why, why it is selling. Yeah, man, it's just such a, such a cool and incredible medium. And I really hope that uh, we are at the beginning. So, but you're actually working with Block Party now to bring in other artists, right? I mean, this is something that you're actively pursuing, not only for yourself, but for, for the music community as a whole. Right now, a lot of musicians are having a very difficult time monetizing because there's no touring. And I wanted to be that first example. I took the reputational risk. Let's make this art. You know, if it didn't do well, oh, well. If it did well, now we have a beta that I can show all my friends and say, hey guys, you can do this too. This is a way for you to monetize at a time that's tough for any musician. And a lot of my friends you know, have already reached out after they saw the first drop. And as these drops get bigger and bigger, I mean, some of these well-known artist drops, they're doing over $100,000 in volume. And as we start to reach those numbers, which I think, you know, based on the success of the first one, I think we might have underpriced everything. And Yeah, I think so. We, I think that we could totally get to those numbers. And at that point, artists may find a completely new way to monetize. And that's really powerful in this environment. So yes, um, to answer your question, I am going to help onboard a lot of artists to the NFT space, to Block Party, to you know, convince them that this, this is a real... It doesn't feel real at first. And it takes everyone a minute to wrap their head around it. But once you do, it starts to feel totally natural and normal. I mean, talking about underpricing, I mean... I'm seeing things that people are buying for $80 being sold successfully within weeks for, you know, over a thousand bucks. I mean, we're talking about people doing 10, 20 X's on pieces of uh, digital art that they buy. And in so many ways, and you know, people might dislike me saying this, but I think that the resale of art is in, is, is in so many ways less speculative than reselling an altcoin that doesn't do anything yet. And here's why. You, there's emotional value in owning that piece of art. There is no emotion. I don't give a shit what anyone says. There is no emotional value in owning an altcoin outside of your belief in the, fu in the future of a protocol. So there's plenty of emotion. <laughs> no emotional <Okay>. value. <laughs> You're not getting any kind of, uh, I should say, artistic experience from yes. owning that altcoin. Um, it's just, you know, you verifying your own belief in the future of a protocol or of a technology, which is, which there is emotion in and of itself, but I don't think it even comes close to the level of depth that any art form can, can provide in, in that emotional arena. So if somebody buys something in the aftermarket for six grand that was sold for 80, either it means they're speculating or it means that they genuinely love it. I don't know of many people that trade like yourself that are like, Oh, I love, Solana protocol. It just makes me feel 
so amazing. Like who's saying that? Like maybe, maybe someone's saying that, right? You but who's saying that? The people who are down 50% on a position that was originally a trade and became an investment and then became a community, passionate community member. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's saying that. Yes. And I don't want to, I don't want to tear on any, on any, you know, any bag holders of any altcoin. I think everyone has the right to believe anything they want to believe and everyone should, should think about how all this stuff is going to play into the future. But I do think that art in and of itself is, is maybe a layer of depth of emotion above speculating on alts um, and speculating on random DeFi pools, hoping the underlying asset doesn't go zero while you collect your thousand percent yield. I mean, you know, this, yeah. is, this is something that's really more interesting. And one of the things that we've been doing um, and what we're doing with our next drop is literally, you know, these two screens behind me, we took a cinemagraph of me sitting watching the art on the screens. I wish I could do it for you now. Um, but dude, it was like the art can loop on there all day long. And when I walk past it, I feel something. And people can do that with digital art. And it's theirs. They own it. It's just a really special um, new wave. And it'll be really interesting to see how it evolves. I'm excited that you're getting involved. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Electronium, and their amazing new platform, AnyTask.com, a place where freelancers can finally be paid for their work without needing a bank. Freelancers match directly with potential clients and receive ETN as payment. Even better, ETN can be spent in over 2,000 physical and online locations worldwide. A lot of companies talk the talk of mainstream adoption, but Electronium is truly walking the walk. They're banking the unbanked worldwide and offering opportunity to those who lack access to the resources that many of us take for granted. In the next few months, they're also adding more in-app purchases, including local food and supplies, paid TV, gaming, gift cards, and much more. If you'd like to learn more, head on over to electronium.com. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-O-N-E-U-M.com. It's interesting because we, I mean, I totally agree with you on the point about altcoins or so even if you're just a trader and it's not something that you're passionate about, in this case, you don't, you just need one person who loves it. Right. Like the secondary market is, as you said, there's just, you only need one buyer. Right. I mean, if you buy something that you think is amazing, you would just have to be convinced that there's one person who thinks it's slightly more amazing than you and is willing to pay for it. Yeah. And if, and if it's something that's selling out, you already know the demand is there. Obviously, someone, if you're sold out in three hours, there was someone who was trying to buy it in the fourth hour that couldn't. I mean, we've seen in the sneaker market for as long as, uh, I mean, I've been buying Jordans. <laughs> it's such a great example. Uh, and I'm a huge sneaker collector. I love sneakers. And it's just a sneaker, but I want it. I want that rare one. I love the look of the, like, I have two pairs of the new Yeezy slides coming. Like, and I want the real ones. I can't explain the emotion in me that wants those but I do. And I'd rather have them than slides that I buy at Target. Yeah. That's it. I mean, yeah. For me, Jordan's was always about like the kids at school that had them and I didn't. And sort of like in my later life, it was for some reason it was a, but it's an emotional thing. Like you said, it's a symbolic, like, well, I didn't have them then, but I can buy them for myself now, even if it's a simple pair and of like, shoes. Jordan's like, dude, like the Toro Bravo fours, like those are such iconic sneakers and I never wear mine. I have them in the closet. I've, love them they're older but they're special to me they create yeah, that there's no reason that di uh, the digital world can't do that too yeah In sneakers fact, perfect example yeah. yeah go ahead no i was just gonna say i mean i think that the evolution of the of this particular look you said something in the beginning of this uh beginning of our conversation that i thought was really interesting because it's something that i'm looking at challenging in the future 
this concept of when you're a musician, you want everyone to hear your work. It's true. You do. But at least at this stage in my career, I found it fascinating. What if I created a music video with an unreleased song that only one person will have access to? And it's their choice to show it to other people if they want. But as an artist, I create the art and then leave it to the universe to decide. That person can buy it and they can do whatever they want with it. Why not? Why not give that a shot? I wonder what would happen. I'm just curious. Would that person then share it? You know, what are the licensing implications of that? If they did decide that they wanted to upload it to Spotify, of course, they couldn't upload it as their own song. That would have to be like written, written into some form of agreement. But if I was a big fan of an artist, like for me, Radiohead's one of my favorite bands of all time. If I had a song that they made that no one else ever heard, there's something really cool about that. Insane. Yeah. You know, like there's something really interesting about that. I don't know how that works yet, but I want to give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And the, ex- the experimentation that's going to follow the next couple months in this world, in this NFT world, that's brand new um, is, is beyond exciting. I mean, even what you're doing where you're splitting up the song, creating a collection out of multiple pieces. That's so cool, man. Like uh, you, even, awesome. you could do that with real art, but it's not quite the same. So this is pushing boundaries and uh, it, it'll be really fun to see how people get involved. It's also interesting. I mean, DJs at your level, certainly like everybody has visuals for their show. Oh my right? God. So I'm, like, I mean, those so are just, so, I mean, it's done. Like the art is there. Right. And those are, those are visuals for shows are largely sort of pieces that people only experience in the moment or they're not on YouTube and they're not around and they may have that mind blowing moment when they're looking at it and they never get to see it again. So imagine if every big touring DJ who now is suffering and sitting at home could like monetize their show visuals. Let me take that a step further. Cause I've, I've thought about that. I think that's a hundred percent something that's going to happen. What about consignment? What about someone that wants to go to a music festival and wants me as an artist or, or not just a music festival, a show. They say, I want you to record my experience so that I can remember it later. And we hire a videographer and we create that individual, an art piece of their experience at the show that they can rewatch in the future. Consigned digital art. That could happen. Why not? Why not? It's, it's art. By the way, it's already happened. It's just not, it just doesn't exist on watching. Right. So like there are really wealthy individuals that spend a lot of money on tables at EDC that hire videographers to record their exclusive experience so that they can remember it in the future. Why not? That's a form of art in and of itself. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm also like speaking here. Like I don't expect everyone to agree with every idea. I don't even necessarily agree with all my own ideas yet. Right. I just think about them and I say, what if, what if, what if, and I never rule out the possibility. Because before all this, I had no idea that we were going to do 23 grand in sales in three hours. Then it happened. Now I'm like, huh, what else is here? Let's explore this. Let's, let's push the boundaries. Um, and it's exciting to see that you're doing it too, man. I, it's just really exciting to even be thinking about music again <laughs> for me, to be honest. So, I mean, talking about COVID and DJing and music, just to pivot away from the art side, I mean... Well, what are people DJs right now thinking, you know, like I have a ton obviously of DJ friends and it's crazy. You see them basically doing Twitch streams for tips and and things like that. But at the very, I think highest level, I mean, is there an expectation that it goes back to how it was? What's the timeline on that? Or do you think that people are already now starting to realize that they're going to need to pivot or actively trying to do something different? It's a hard question. Um, I think that some people are doing the drive-in thing. I think that's great for them to monetize in this crazy time. I don't want to dilute my own live experience doing that. I feel like being really close next to someone crammed into the 
into the club or crammed up thing. At the festival is like such a big part of the experience. When I go, that's what I do. Um, that's how I enjoy festivals or, or shows. So it's difficult for me to imagine, you know, being in an environment where you can't meet other people who share your passion in the music that you're watching live. It's like such a big part of it. So we're not doing that, but I do think there are a lot of artists that are because they need to, to survive. And that's good. I think that's good that they're, that they're doing that. Um, but realistically, I don't think things will go back to normal for another year. Um, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but even with testing at the door, um, things will start to go back before a year from now, but will they, will they return to where they were before? It's going to be maybe even longer than a year in terms of consumers attitudes towards actually going to shows like who wants to go now. I mean, there are people that don't give a shit, but not everyone doesn't give a shit. A lot of people do. I I've been pretty strict on my own quarantine schedule. I've only driven places. I haven't taken a flight. I get tested. You know, I'm, I'm not really out in public that much. I do get tested pretty frequently. Um, especially cause I see my grandparents pretty often. So I, I, I yeah, never, you have to. Yeah. And because we really haven't seen a solution in sight, the election's coming, the focus has shifted to the election. People are becoming a little bit more lackadaisical. Uh, you know, I realistically don't think that the music world is going to go back to normal anytime soon. And I think it's going to force artists to have to innovate and think about things like this. Um, and you know, we'll see. Um, I, 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 I can't give a good answer because I don't think anybody knows. I mean, when this started, I figured it would be six months, six months later. So it's six months later and it doesn't feel like any closer to, you know, realizing the, certainly the reality of what it was, um, before what other creative ways are you seeing artists, um, you know, try to make scrap together a living at this point, I guess. Outside of the drive-in shows, a lot of people are doing the Twitch thing. Yeah. A lot of brands are paying for streams. We've done a couple of, um, you know, brand partnered streams, but it's not like to be dead honest, man. Like when I'm DJing a set in my studio to nobody and I have to like fake the energy, it's not that I'm faking it. Like I'm still into the music, but I don't get that crowd energy. I don't get riled up the way I do when I play normally for 10 years that I've been touring. It's not the same. So I actually don't even really, I do it for the fans and I think it's important that they get to enjoy music from the, from the comfort of their homes when they can't go out. Um, but I personally don't enjoy it as much. I'll do it because I, I want to obviously, you know, showcase some new music that I'm listening to new stuff that I'm making, but it's not the same feeling. I don't have the same feeling. I'd rather actually make music than DJ live from my house. Yeah, of course. Um, I agree with that. So, so, has it been at all a, welcome break from the touring life? Um, or is it you're ready to get back out there and you miss it? Um, you know, it has been a welcome break. I, I, I been touring since I was 19. I'm 29. Um, right before COVID, I, I, I'd always lived in a, in a, in a building, in a condo, um, for seven years because I was moving around. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to move into something that was more responsibility and, you know, I bought my first home in December, COVID hit. Now I get to enjoy my first home. Um, and I have a backyard, which is, I've never had a backyard in my life, you know, like, yeah. I did when I was younger, but it's been a while and it's nice to have like being the nature. I'm, I live right on the foot of a mountain in Vegas in the desert. Um, it's really inspiring. It's inspired a lot of the creativity behind the NFTs that we've been making. And, you know, I was already kind of planning this year to roll back the touring a little bit and take a break. Now it just got forced upon me. Um, I'm yield farming substantially for the past month. Um, it's awesome. I'm yield farming and making music and spending time with my girlfriend and, you know, which I normally don't get to do that much of in a touring environment. So it's, it's been actually kind of nice and I'm very thankful and grateful for the lifestyle that, that I've been able to enjoy at this time. That's, that's hard on people. And I think that's kind of my inspiration for getting other artists on board to this NFT space to give them the means of, of being able to support their lifestyles in, in a time that's otherwise pretty difficult. Yeah. I mean, I never toured at, at that level, but I had years where it was like a hundred, 120 days you know, on the road. And I can say that like by a certain age, I'm, I'm 43. So, oh, you know, when I was, no, I was in, <laughs> when I was in my, when I was in my late thirties and approaching retirement, I hated it. Like I, sir, I love playing music, but everything else that I had to do to get there to play music, I just really, 
It's like you show up every single place. They want you to party with them and the, you want you to be people, their best friend. Dude, you just want to go to sleep. <laughs> I tell people that I don't get paid to DJ. I get paid to put my body through hell so that I can DJ. It's true. Um, that's the only, like, if someone wants to, like, if there's a set down the street here in Vegas and it's going to be a great time, it doesn't take any extra effort. But to go from LA to Tokyo, LA to New York to Tokyo to Korea to Philippines to Indonesia to Singapore to Hawaii back to Korea, San Francisco home. Um, I memorize that because I've told people that story a lot. Like I did that in like two and a half weeks. Like that's not, not rational. <laughs> like it's not sustainable. So yeah, for me, it's been nice. Um, I've had a lot of downtime. I've been able to enjoy, you know, learning a lot about the new tech that's happening in, in, in the blockchain space because I'm doing a lot more reading. And that's been exciting because I think that this is a, this is a really exciting, pivotal moment for everything in the space. Yeah. Not just, not just DeFi, not just NFTs, but everything. And especially when there's all this fear about, you know, what is fiat really worth when the government can just snap their fingers? I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that are really concerned. I mean, I know personally, I'm very afraid um, of, of what the future looks like. And, and I think that's attracting a lot more people to the space. For the first time, you know, I think that um, we had, obviously there's the maximalist population that was ahead of the curve as there is with anything new, you know, the Bitcoin people who are like, dollar's going to hyperinflate, it's over. But now we're like, I don't think the dollar's going to hyper, hyperinflate. But now like your average person is sitting around going, wait, what the hell is this? What, what do you mean? They're just going to print more and send more and buy corporate bonds. And, you know, I think everybody realizes now that the market is somewhat of a Ponzi scheme. And economic theory is shifting in ways that, and again, I have no, like, um, I tell everyone that I have strong opinions loosely held. I'm always willing to be proven wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and right now I actually don't have a strong opinion on what, what field of economics truly informs the current structure, whether it's, you know, Keynesian economics, MMT, like, I don't really know what rationalizes what the fed and what the government are doing right now. Um, but I don't even want to know. I just don't trust it. I don't care. I'm not even going to try to make sense of it. It doesn't make sense. So I'm going to do something with capital, with resources that I do understand, which is that there's this thing called Bitcoin. There will only be a certain amount that will ever exist. There are very few threats to its existence, quantum computing being one of them, but who really knows how long it'll take for that to happen and, and what other features will be added by the time that's possible. Um, and this is something that might be super fucking volatile, but I know it's limited and gold isn't like, li- I mean, the Winklevi, they're so funny. I love their example about gold. If Elon starts mining asteroids, gold ain't going to be worth anything. Yeah, like, of course. It's not scarce anymore. <laughs> but there are rules, algorithmic programmed rules that limit something that's digitally scarce. That's powerful to me. It always has been. Um, so as a fiat alternative, I don't know. It's not certainly not as transactable, but as a store of value, uh, you know, people who've worked really hard in their life who have dollars and, you know, it's losing purchasing power, sitting in a bank account that's earning zero yield. I mean, that's dangerous. And then you think about the global economy and you think about all the other countries that have people that have hyperinflation, unbanked populations in India, in Venezuela, you think about giving them access to banking for the first time in history. And you really start to think that this shit is powerful beyond what we know here in the U S as you know, we're very privileged to be in this country. Um, in my opinion, regardless of political belief, we live in a free country where you could basically do anything you want. Um, that is not the case for 90% of the global population um, or 80% of the global population. But still, I, I think that there's, there's so much power in that, that U.S. centric people, you know, I, I fall into that myself. I fall into that mindset of feeling, you, you know, U.S. centric in my views of economics and my views of money. When the reality is there are all these people that don't even have access to a freaking bank account. They got phones though. They got phones. Everywhere. (laughs) You you probably, um, 
I think a, peop- a lot of people who have that sort of U.S. centric view never really leave the U.S. to some degree. You know, most people aren't fortunate enough to travel the world, but you've been obviously everywhere. So it ha- does that inform your perspective at all, seeing it live and in person on the streets of these other countries? Uh, yes, um, being in walking around in, Indo- in, in Jakarta, Indonesia, where you've got a designer mall with every major fashion designer, Dior, Chanel, under the sun that is completely empty with a few clients and literally 10 feet away, you're in the slums. I mean, that's crazy. Um, that was an eye-opening experience. Being in Guatemala as well, I've done a lot, some charity work in Guatemala, um, three hours outside of major cities where there's no paved roads or clean water. Like, these are things that like people d- take for granted in this country. And people complain about politics and people complain about this, that they don't realize that like having electricity and running water is like unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like the simple things in life that we forget. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I don't want to go too macro here, but I do think that FinTech, not just blockchain tech, but FinTech as a whole is what will balance these services and these features that we so greatly appreciate here in the U S FinTech will bring it to emerging markets because people are willing to invest in emerging markets. And when there are people that are willing to invest, value is created, you know, infrastructure is created. And right now, if you want to move money from one country to another, it's really fucking hard. Yeah. Even and for us, the case. even for Americans. So yeah. imagine if you're Mark. trying to get money from Nigeria to Kenya or, you know, oh my God. but like, you don't even like, I never even really thought about this stuff. But then when I did my first ETH transaction and it took like 45 seconds, I was like, you know, paying high gas. I was like, <laughs> but even for the high gas, it's better than a fucking $30 wire international. Yeah, I was going to say, a wire is so expensive, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and your money might not arrive for seven days. So, Oh my God, it's, it's, it's so antiquated. It's, it, it frustrates me. It's like, uh, I can't believe that it's lasted this long. But, but these legacy systems do you know, maintain their, their, their market share. Um, but it will change. And it's just exciting that people like yourself and people like me, um, people like your followers are, are thinking about this stuff because um, whether we like it or not, it's coming. And in the next 50 years, things are going to be a lot different. You touched on uh, doing charity work in Guatemala. I know that charity is a big part of, uh, part of your life. Can you talk about that a bit, bit more? Yeah. So we've built about seven schools in Guatemala with funds that we've raised from my record label, which donates a, a large portion of profits to charity. Um, it's awesome. kind of at my discretion, but we've raised about $380,000 in the past four or five years for different charities. Um, and uh, mostly Pencils of Promise, which is a charity that uh, particularly builds schools in cooperation with local governments in places for you know awesome. elementary education. Um, I visited three or four of the schools in my life. I've been down to Guatemala three times. Um, it's an, it's an eye opening, an eye opening experience. Um, and really makes you feel, yeah, I've, I've always felt like it's cliche when people talk about that. Right. Cause other people tell those stories about going to these places and, you know, seeing how other, you know, mass amounts of the global population live. But those cliches are, are pretty, they're, they're accurate cliches. Of course. Um, it really does ch- change your perspective. And I ended up taking my parents, um, one of the trips and they were like mind blown by the experience. Like being on a dirt road for three hours is pretty hard on your body winding roads to get to a city that has like barely any electric. Like these, these are things that we, we really do take for granted here in this country. And that's why Twitter frustrates me because people complain about such bullshit, like whatever it might be. Like, how are we supposed to be employed? How are we supposed to like find a job? Like figure it out. You know, that we have the ability to figure it out here in this country. You could figure something out. It might be hard, but these other people, they, they, they got nothing. <laughs> like they, they have nothing. So, you know, not to say that people, you know, it's obviously difficult for, for some people in this environment to find employment. But in, in the world where you have the inf- information of the internet at your fingertips, you could build any skill set that you want. Yep. And someone else will value that skill set. And, you know, in my case, I felt... Outside of music, I've wanted to build my understanding of the distributed ledger tech space because I feel it's going to shape the future of our economy and of global economies. 
and having that knowledge is probably going to be valuable in the next decade. So that's why I do what I do and why I'm, you know, trying a lot of stuff. Some of it's not going to work. Some of it is. Yeah. I mean, I've failed more times at things than I count, uh, care to care to remember for sure. And I, it's funny. I, I think I sent a tweet quite literally today that said, you know, success is not just about talent. It's largely about access and opportunity. And that's what you're saying. And these probably some of the most talented people in the world live in these places, but have literally zero access or opportunity to capitalize on that talent. Exactly. And that's why politically speaking, my only political belief is that the government should spend every single dollar equalizing the playing field for access and opportunity. It's the only way to fix anything. <laughs> Quite literally the opposite of what governments do. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but, but that's literally, I mean, money should go into improving education. Money should go into, you know, giving people access to, 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 to affordable banking, to unpredatorial interest rates to, I mean, all these problems that exist that, that, that create this wealth divide. It's not so much about like taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. It's literally giving people equal opportunity and disrupting, you know, these existing legacy systems that favor, you know, the wrong types of people and the wrong incentives. But I think ultimately, you know, um, it is an exciting time because the world is in crisis. We see a lot of innovation in times of crisis. People are more open-minded in times of crisis. They're looking for solutions. And in that environment um, and in this environment, we're going to see a lot of really cool things happen. There's going to be some pain. We're also going to see a lot of cool things happen. Excuse me. You're talking, talking about charity. There's probably endless ways to utilize NFTs and art to raise money for charity, embedding QR codes or an ability to donate or a certain percent of the proceeds. I mean, I think there's probably, I haven't even thought about it, but, I bet oh, that there's okay. incredible ways to, to do that. hundred percent. And, and I've always felt whenever, you know, a lot of my philanthropic commitment has been primarily to education because I've always felt that my education has played such an important role in my life. Um, mm-hmm. If I didn't have the friends and teachers and people along the way that were amazing mentors, I would not be where I am today. I can Same. very confidently say I, I gained so much from my education here in this country, both public, you know, and private college, all of it, even though I didn't graduate. Um, I still have a relationship with my economics professor from college. We talk once a month and he's the one who convinced my parents to let me drop out. Um, really? Yeah. Cause he was like, Justin's never going to have another opportunity like this, um, in his life and he can keep his scholarship, um, for seven years and just let him try it. So that was it. But, um, so that's why I give back mostly in the education field, because I feel like that's the easy, it's the clearest path to equalizing opportunity for me in, in, in the field of giving. Um, I also obviously really, you know, like to help with medical projects that have hit close to home. Um, but those are kind of my two philanthropic priorities, um, mostly education and anything medical related um, that has affected people in my life or family members and whatnot. Yeah, uh, same. So uh, interesting. You talked at the very beginning, and then we kind of just came back to it talking about wiring money. But having a middleman is a huge problem in in so many parts of our lives. Certainly financial, but most people probably don't realize how many people a DJ or musician is paying. <laughs> oh yeah, well, not me, but uh, but a lot of a lot of other musicians need need to have. Um, better guidance when they start their careers because, and, and we can dive, this is a whole other conversation. Um, I wish we had the time to go into that, this, this deep conversation because I have a lot of thoughts about this. But when an artist starts their career, they, they, they demand that liquidity, that security net, so that they can pursue their art in most cases. Um, and so they're more willing to sign an unfavorable deal to gain access to that liquidity early on from a record label that's taking advantage of their equity stake in the artist's work. So that, that artist is so in demand for liquidity to have that, to pursue that dream. They, they're not thinking about how much they're giving away. Oh, 10%. Sure. In, in a tech startup, 10% of a company, you're paying for that. Damn. Right. If you want 10% equity in a new project, like, I mean, that's the full round. 
you know, that's pretty low. It's pretty low. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, like, I think it's kind of crazy that most artists end up giving up a lot of their, the value that they generate. There was a great Rolling Stone article that came out in 18 that said the U S music recorded industry generates about 40 billion a year. And only 12% of that 40 billion ends up in artists pockets. Right. Seems pretty crazy to me. But even with touring, obviously, like the 360 deal became sort of a thing and labels realized they couldn't sell music and could just grab your money from shows and merchandise and everything. But like beyond even that you're talking about the label deal, you're paying your manager, you're paying your booking agent, you're paying a PR agent. If you're touring, you're paying the bus driver, you're paying for the gas, you're renting the bus. Yeah. There's just nothing left. And a lot of people pay on the gross. They don't even pay on the net. So there's a lot, there's a lot of education that needs to happen in that arena. Um, I also think that like a lot of the music structure is going to be pretty heavily disrupted in the next 10 years as artists begin to realize that like they don't need a lot of these people on, on percentage, but instead on fee. Um, yeah. There are newer artists like Russ who have made That's millions awesome. of dollars off of just posting music to TuneCore. Like people are realizing that they don't need to go the conventional route anymore. But it wasn't like that for a long time. So the next 10 years in music are going to be really interesting. Um, I'm really excited about something that I'm working on that, again, is too long of a conversation uh, (laughs) for now. But um, one of the things that I'm most excited about, whether it's an NFT or not, it's probably not NFT related um, in the short term. It could be in the long term. But um, I'm really excited about the prospect of issuing um, equity and rev share in master recording rights to fans giving fans an opportunity to invest in music assets. It's never been done. Um, fans don't have access to invest in music assets. They would love to because music is really emotional to them. It creates a positive feedback loop for fans to basically share the music that they've invested in. And it also pays a cash flow. And all this, this narrative of that's pretty common, there's this common narrative within the music space that says uh, Spotify doesn't pay artists. It's not true. They actually do. They pay artists a so lot. Yeah. Um, they get a label the artist signed a bad deal. Um, so if you maintain your rights, my revenue growth 50 X between 2015 and 2019. So you tell me it's creating value. People are like Spotify sucks, but no, they're actually like all these streaming services are great. I'm making more money from music than ever before in my life. Thank you. Why? Because I own my masters. So instead of giving, those masters to a label that's going to give you a very small amount of cash and take 70 for up to 80% of, of the equity in your music. Why not let the fans invest and believe in you at a more fair multiple valuation of whatever your future music looks like? We've seen athletes tokenizing their careers, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's inevitably going to happen um, in music. But it's like it's just very difficult from from a legal standpoint. There's yeah, a lot. It's, insur- it's insurance for the artist or the athlete to make sure that they get some of their money up front, and it's a way for someone to speculate on something they believe in. Which is, I mean, everybody should have the right to do that. It's an alternative to getting liquidity from a predator. So I think it's going to happen. Uh, we're going to do it. Um, I'm definitely going to issue equity in my next album to fans, um, and I'm really excited about it. In fact. I would go so far to say that, that some of my friends who are in the tech space and other investors, the, the quote unquote round is already fully committed for, and I barely even started this thing. I've just floated it to friends and my friends are like, they know what my revenue looks like for my music from my last album, which is basically three X the cost of creating the album. And they know that they know what I, you know, what streaming numbers we do monthly. And they said, when you do this, I'm committing this much money. Some of my startup friends, they're like, I'm in whenever you launch this. And we've already, and my target amount's already committed for, and I barely started this project. So I know there's demand for it. I know that, you know, and and investors would be so excited to have access to music cash flows. Um, The problem is just that the narrative is wrong, that people say artists don't make money. We do. It's just keep your rights. You used to need a label because like you couldn't get your CV on the shelf at tower records, right? I mean, you needed distribution and you needed marketing. You needed, you needed them to buy ads in billboard and rolling stone. There was no internet. I mean, there, 
now you now it's just the marketing and promotion because you don't need the distribution. You can if you have a friend who can like get you on a Spotify play- playlist, you're good. That's what a label does for you, well, right? The algorithm says your song is good to all these. I mean, there's what so does many- a label even do now. I would go so far to say that labels. There are certain labels that are smaller that there's that do add a lot of creative and distributive value to a release. So I did a release um, with a big label, not not big, a very I should say reputable niche and respectable label called Anjuna Beats. Mm-hmm. And I'm more than happy to split my master recording rights with them because they did such an incredible job on the creative, on the promotion. They're a partner. So it makes sense. Um, a major label record deal that has you locked in for four albums and gives you a hundred grand when you're a tiny artist and you don't know what you're doing, that's predatorial and wrong. So I, I shouldn't go so far to say that record labels will be irrelevant because they won't. I think labels that are more creative collectives will always be relevant and special. But the big dogs that are just prey on, you know, young artists' careers, like eventually the young artists will stop doing it. Yeah, they especially they, they couldn't in the past, but now there's a better way. It's not like in the 1980s, you could uh, go around the country to, you know, radio yourself and distribute your music. So it really is a different world. A now you can make a TikTok video and get on the top 50. It's insane. It's awesome. I mean, it's awesome. It's so yeah. much, so much better this way. It's a matter of, uh, I think... People just now have to treat their career like a business and approach it in that manner as opposed to just the creative side. And if they can grapple that and find creative ways to market, you can do it on zero budget. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. It's, good to, it's an interesting time. Um, cool, man. Well, I am... Um, yeah, I actually, we got to go. <laughs> uh, but this was awesome. I appreciate you letting me rant about stuff. Yeah, that's um, what we do here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. And I'm uh, looking forward to the next... Uh, next drop and to see what you have uh, coming in the future. And we'll have to do this again a few months down the road and see where the space is, uh, has landed. Definitely excited for your drop too, man. It's going to be epic. Thank you, bro. Have a good one. Let's go.